waters from Lake Mansarova connect the South Asian subcontinent through numerous river systems, creating a geographical entity that has molded a unique regional identity. Today, the South Asian region is facing numerous non-traditional security challenges that require regional solutions. The Mansarovar podcast, co-produced by the Council for Strategic and Defence Research and Friedrich Ebert Stiftung India, brings to you conversations with experts from the region. These conversations discuss critical issues and explore ways of addressing them better together. In this episode, Ms. Devirupa Mitra, Diplomatic Editor at The Wire, hosts a conversation with Professor Sanjay Kathuria, Adjunct Professor at Georgetown University, Visiting Faculty at Ashoka University, and formerly Lead Economist at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. They are joined by Professor Mahendra P. Lama, Development Economist and Senior Professor at the School of International Studies, Jawaharlal Nehru University. Professor Lama is also the Chief Economic Advisor to the State Government of Sikkim and the Government of India's nominee in the Eminent Persons Group set up by the Prime Ministers of India and Nepal. They discuss challenges in trade and connectivity between India, Nepal, Bhutan and Bangladesh and the pathways to developing a trade integration strategy for the region. Dear Professor Kathuria and Professor Lama, welcome to the Mansarwar podcast and thank you for your time. I would like to open with a broad question addressed to both of you. We all know that South Asia has turned into one of the world's least integrated regions, where it is cheaper for Indian companies to trade with Brazil and Germany rather than with neighboring Bangladesh. What, according to you, are the political and historical reasons that have held back trade connectivity between India and its eastern neighbors? So... I think, uh, obviously, there is a history of conflict in the region. Conflict creates mistrust. And a desire to be different is even more powerful, in a sense, for long-run separation. And the markers of this, as many of us know, there's the 1947 marker, which created one degree of separation. The 1965 war between India and Pakistan created further barriers. Actually, between 47 and 65, things were Trade was still quite high and interconnected between India and the, both the parts of Pakistan. But 65 created much firmer, much thicker walls between India and Pakistan. And then, you know, between as far as Bangladesh goes, also between 1975 and 2009, again, except for a five-year period in between. So there were all these conflicts and history of upheavals, domestic upheavals, both, say, in Bangladesh and Nepal, which also create these kinds of issues in connectivity. Now, because of this conflict and mistrust, the economic facilitators of connectivity also fell into disuse. And I think it's also important to mention India's own economic predilections, which was, you know, going towards a closed economy, rebelling against the openness that the British Raj had proposed and profited from. So India was closed economically, as we all know. So the natural markets for neighbors were not in India, but outside India. And therefore, taking a leave from India, the neighbors also closed their markets. So all in all, this sort of the economic philosophy and the politics sort of reinforced each other and created this long run, what you certainly call, and it's very true that it is still the least integrated region in the world. Professor Lama, would you like to add to it? Yeah, very much. I think... Uh... 
I would like to add uh, three more points to what uh, Sanjay said. First, of course, is the very nature of a state that evolved in South Asia after 1947 has got much to do with what you have, a process of uh, very, very slow integration in South Asia. You know, we developed states which were essentially inward looking as far as the region is concerned. That means uh, don't interact with the regional partners. Whereas uh, the same state developed some kind of outward looking attitude as far as the extra regional partners. So it's very clear that Sri Lanka would interact much more with Southeast Asian countries, but not much with South Asian countries, you will find. In a situation like Bhutan and that of Nepal, uh, it was more or less very geographically and uh, geopolitically, it was very compulsive on their part to interact with India because they did not have any alternative as far as their interactions with other countries. It has to be done through India only. The second very important issue which we have over the years realized is the institutions that would really uh, bring these countries together were literally absent. An institution which would uh, instill some kind of confidence as far as regionalism is concerned, as far as what you call it, some kind of interactions, cooperations are concerned. They were totally absent as far as South Asian countries are concerned. All kinds of institutions, both in the private sector and in the public sector. And the third very critical element in all these, uh, what you call it, a game which is uh, primarily very, very segregated, isolated and compartmentalized was I think there was no domestic pressure on any of these countries to interact on a kind of a much more comprehensive manner with any of the neighboring countries. And on top of that, India, as one of the what you call uh, most critical actors, it remained withdrawn as far as regionalism process is concerned. We were 72% of geography, 75% of GDP, 76% of population. Despite all these, India primarily adopted a bilateral approach as far as its relations with all the neighboring countries. Today also, I would feel that India is essentially prioritizing its bilateral ventures in the South Asian countries. I think these are the reasons. So towards the end, when we found the entire issue of cooperation integration coming up, we found that it was a situation where we were integrated, then we disintegrated, and we are now trying to reintegrate it now, which is a very, very difficult and cumbersome process, very rarely found in other regions of the world. My second question, again, I would like to address to both of you. Now that we have a better understanding of why we stand where we do, can you paint a picture of the current uh, geoeconomic context of the region for our listeners? We have three of the big uh, South Asian economies, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh. They've approached IMF for economic help. So what is this post-COVID economic reality potent in terms of opportunities and challenges for economic integration among the BBI and countries especially? You know, the impact of COVID has been that it has encouraged calls for, as we all know, for near-shoring supply chains, bringing supply chains closer to home. And that certainly supports regional integration from a broader perspective. There is also the climate change perspective, whereas sustainable growth demands 
or seems to require shorter supply chains. That means you're not sending goods right, you know, across the corners of the world, then to be reshipped back. And uh, that's the nature of value chains, you know, that a product crosses the borders several times before it goes. So that logic seems to demand that there is a greater environment for regional supply chains are, is stronger because it travels shorter distances. And then the earlier, the inherent logic of regional integration uh, grows stronger than ever as South Asia grows and many countries in the region, especially Bangladesh and India, but hopefully, you know, others will also recover, including Pakistan and Sri Lanka. They will recover from these shocks and become also become growth economies. So in any case, the region has always relied on the rest of the world much more than it is relied domestically or within the region. And I think now, even just to counterbalance that and to provide the buoyancy world trade, we know the environment has become very uncertain after the US-China trade wars. So all of that, I think, in terms of an overall uh, geoeconomic and geopolitical environment, I think that favors the logic of regional integration. And then, in addition, the increasing inroads of China in South Asia have actually pushed India to focus and deliver in the region. And I think that's very good for the region, irrespective of the what is the initial impetus. But actually, India's delivery in the region has certainly improved significantly. I find that very interesting that you talk about how the role of China has actually been good for the smaller countries. I mean, India may have a different view on how the influence of China is uh, basically taking over its role in the region. Professor Lama, do you uh, also agree with Professor Kathuria? Oh, very much. I think one of the most uh, critical driving forces that has really galvanized India into, again, the regional cooperation process, integration process of a different nature is because the way China has entered into South Asia in the last uh, 20 to 25 years is amazing. But uh, nobody could really see. For example, let us look into the trade data. I see that in 1990, Bangladesh-China trade used to be hardly $173 million. Today, it is more than $19 billion. India, $270 million in 1990. Today, it would be more than $120 billion. Pakistan, $574 million to almost $19 billion. Even Sri Lanka. On an average, I would see Pakistan's dependence on China as trade is concerned is 20%, and India would be about 11 to 12%, Bangladesh 15%. So this is just an indicator of how China has quietly entered into the entire But trade is very closely related to the entire investment process, exchanges in services sector, including tourism, and infrastructure, buildings, connectivity, all these are very related. But one of the very uh, interesting fallouts of this is, for the first time, India would move from South Asia regional framework to a different framework of what you call sub-regionalism framework, and that is where you will find BBIN. So the theater of cooperation and integration would now gradually move to Eastern South Asia, right, which is basically Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, Nepal, and to a large extent, even Myanmar. So most of our 
projects are concentrated in these. If you see the connectivity projects, if you see projects related to what you call energy exchanges, if you see projects related to supply chains and value chains, they're all mostly being developed in this. And this is going to be very critical precisely because this has been integrated with two very vital India's national interest uh, related policies. One is ACTIS policy and the second one is uh, what you call the neighborhood first policy where they would make the entire Northeast region as what you call a new growth pole. If we can discuss some of the specific countries uh, and India's relationship with trade relationship with them. Professor Lama, I'd like to stay with you on this. How would you characterize the trajectory of India's trade development partnership with Nepal? I mean, we had a very difficult uh, time earlier and the relationship seems to be emerging from that difficult phase after Prime Minister Deoba took over. Do we have any scope for optimism right now? I would say yes, precisely because uh, India and Nepal have had a very promising trajectory as far as economic relations are concerned. There is no sector in Nepal where there is uh, some kind of uh, solid influence, substantive influence of India. Say, for example, it was in 1960 only, India and Nepal signed an agreement saying that the ultimate aim of this economic cooperation would be creating a common market. So you will have a transit treaty, you will have a trade treaty, you have treaty on many other issues, on hydropowers and all. But what has really happened is, again, despite all these, India has participated, of course, in foreign economic assistance through different grants, projects. You have done roads, you have communications, you have airports, you have done all kinds of things. But what India has really missed in Nepal is to really build modern institutions, institutions related to science and technology, education, health, communications, right, uh, top class uh, technology institutions and all. Therefore, on the one hand, you would like to integrate Nepal, but with the Indian economic system. But on the other hand, Nepalese do not have that capabilities. So they would be basically dependent on India and they would suddenly develop some kind of a withdrawal syndrome, a kind of a what you call resource nationalism. We have resource in terms of water, but we don't want to lose total control of water, right? So what they did was they somehow connected their total control or erosion of control on water resources with their national sovereignty and national identity. The moment you start doing that, you withdraw from the cooperation process. Now, India has to really build confidence. And in the last 10 years, we have seen some big private sector companies have gone into Nepalese hydropower resources. Two, you have also seen that in 2021, India has now given some kind of a under the cross-border energy trading, some kind of a facility to Nepal to really sell electricity to, to Bangladesh through the Indian territories using Indian transport, what you call it, uh, the transit points. As But the, the question here is, you develop. On the one hand, you have given a full-body corridor to Nepal to give access to Bhutan, 30 kilometers 
between Fulbari and uh, what you call it, Nepalese border to Bangladesh in Bangladesh. But today also, I was there just about two months back and I could see there are no regulations. Uh, there are no scientific interventions. You can see the conditions of the roads. You can see conditions of the customs point, immigration points, borderland facilities. They are still at a very, very nascent stage. You're listening to episode three of the Mansarovar podcast, co-produced by the Council for Strategic and Defense Research, New Delhi, and Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, India. In this episode, Ms. Devi Rupa Mitra of The Wire is in conversation with Professor Mahendra Lama from JNU New Delhi and Professor Sanjay Kathuria, former lead economist of the World Bank. Professor Kathuria, if I may come to you, I would like to speak to you about Bangladesh. What do you think is a report card direction of a partnership uh, with Bangladesh? So I think India-Bangladesh, this partnership is perhaps the most important in South Asia bilaterally both for themselves, but also for the future of the all of South Asia, because it, it shows an example of what is possible. So Bangladesh is going to graduate from uh, becoming a least developed country in 2026, thanks to its fine economic performance. And it then needs to assure itself of markets. Currently, India provides a fully open duty-free market to Bangladeshi goods. But once it graduates out of this LDC status, it will need to find, assure itself not only of the, for the Indian market, but for markets around the world where so far it has enjoyed preferences. So that is why it has concluded or there's an agreement now from both heads of government, Bangladesh, as well as India, that they should start the so-called SIPA, the Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. Hopefully negotiations will start this year. So there is a pressure for Bangladesh to do that. This agreement, we are told, it will include trade, services, investment, which is very good. So it goes beyond traditional goods trade. And that's what a good all-round relationship should be. The Bangladesh-India relationship is deep and wide-ranging. So it has depth and breadth. It includes trade. It includes medical and general tourism. You know, Bangladeshi medical tourists and tourists are the largest source of tourists for India. It includes people-to-people connect. It includes energy trade. And it includes growing connectivity. It includes transit now is happening. And therefore, on all these fronts, there will be incremental progress on all these different fronts, which is a good thing, as I said earlier. And India is even facilitating energy trade, not just bilaterally, but also now with Nepal and with Bhutan, so that there can be trilateral energy cooperation. And because that energy has to be wheeled through India, India is actually facilitating that. And then there is transit in goods trade on both sides. That is also happening. So overall foundation is deep and there is tremendous goodwill. If I may throw in another question about Bangladesh, because perhaps uh, it would be right to say that we have the most connectivity hardware between India and any neighboring country would be with Bangladesh. I'm not sure if you would agree with that. But since um, I was looking at some of the World Bank, uh, it was recently a blog post uh, written by Mandakini Call on the World Bank website, where she talked about how the India's busiest integrated border crossing in South Asia. And she had visited there and she talked about the hundreds of hours that uh, trucks have to stand at either side to, to basically move a few kilometers across the border. 
Similarly, Daily Star had a recent article where they talked about that the Ashugand Akhara Transshipment Corridor has barely been used since it was started in 2016-17. Babi, do you think that basically even if we have these uh, connectivity hardware in place, do we have the capacity and the political will in both sides to actually use them? It will happen, you know, if, as both Mahendra and I said at the beginning, we've gotten unused to uh, dealing with each other over so many decades. And even though you build hardware, sometimes you don't build complementary software, as you were saying, or then business doesn't know, private sector doesn't know actually that, for example, that transit facility in fact exists and, and that you can use that, which is much better than using the, the roundabout chicken's neck route. So I'm quite optimistic that it will happen. It needs to get into the DNA of the private sector that these facilities are there and they exist and governments have to publicize them. And mind you, when you're creating these options as the ambitions are, are quite high, then you are also have to tackle many vested interests in the private sector who benefit from the existing dispensation of whatever long border crossing times and uh, not allowing transit and you know switching from one truck to another, all of that dysfunctional current way of engagement as it gradually starts getting replaced by better ways of trading and connectivity, there will certainly be resistance. So yes, do we wish that it could be accelerated? The connectivity, yes. But is it in the right direction? Yes. Let me add two, three very striking uh, lacunas. First is when you go to the seaports or when you go to the airports and when you go to the land ports in the eastern part, you'll find that the seaports and the airports will have the third generation technology as far as management of customs, management of goods, services are concerned. And when you go to the borderlands, you will find still the first generation technology. So naturally, you have several problems. One, secondly, you don't have basic facilities. You go to Dauki between Meghalaya and uh, Bangladesh. Uh, you go to Daranga and Sanduk Jonkar district in Bhutan, Daranga in Assam. You go to Funcholing and uh, Jaigao between Bhutan. And, and you go to even Tamubar. You don't have electricity. You don't have internet uh, bandwidth. You don't have water. You don't have basic facilities. So all these things are bound to be there. All these things. Secondly, the people who are undertaking these projects, they do not know the larger aims of these projects. Do you get it? That's what we have found. Contractors, builders who are doing these connectivity projects are totally unaware of what government of India would like to really do through these projects, integrating the economies and all. So you have several difficulties. But I would like to add three points here. You know, all these issues have to be brought under a much, much broader ambit of India's activist policy. You have a trilateral highway starting from Manipur and ending in Thailand. In between, you have Myanmar, two major cities, right? Who will use this? Nobody really bothers about it. It's going to be completed in course of two years. We have Sitway Port, we have Kaladan projects. Who are going to use this? The best user group in this would be the Bengal, Bihar, Northeast region, Nepal, Bhutan, and Bangladesh. So you make Bangladesh, Bhutan, Nepal a partner in India's activist policy. Secondly, I would also like to say that you really have to sensitize the, the states. You have 80 states in the Northeast. And if you go and ask the policymakers, 
what is your idea about actist policy? Nobody would be very clear about it. This is a four-way problem. If you have to do a transport connectivity, right? First, you will have to look into uh, within a state, within Nagaland. Then you have to do look into the second way is to between Nagaland and Manipur, Manipur and Tripura. Then the third way would be entire Northeast states and the rest of India. And the fourth is entire Northeast states with the neighboring countries. Nobody really thinks in this manner. And if you do not really harmonize your connectivity projects, both the hard part of it and the soft part of it, the institutional part of it, the policy part of it, we are bound to get results which are not expected. Uh, Taking a quote from uh, Professor Lama's Professor Lama, while the physical connectivity has been lacking and has not uh, been in place for the last 75 years, uh, South Asia already had a network of regional and bilateral free trade agreements. But even with this, India's trade volume with its neighbors had remained below its potential. Why have these regional mechanisms not worked? Well, there are two, I think, basic reasons. One is we really believed in status quo, right? We did not really believe in diversifying the facilities on the other side of the border in Bangladesh and uh, in Nepal and Bhutan. We did not really strengthen the entire production processes that side, right? Second issue is we remained an inward-looking country. We would do only incremental interventions as far as trade, as far as investments are concerned, only if there is a huge political upheaval or some kind of social protest, we would do something big. Say, for example, today also, if there is an export from Nepal to India, say, ginger, we would impose some kind of phytosanitary measures and say that it has to be taken to quarantine facility and then the testing facilities all the way to Calcutta, And then by the time all these products, all these commodities would be spoiled. What we are saying is, why don't you do the entire quarantine facility on the other sides of the border, right? There only you do it, Mm -hmm. build the capacities there, build the institutions there. Similarly, in case of entire production system, you do the entire production system there. And the third thing I would say is, you know, the entire incentives-based investments, you have Northeast Industrial Investment Schemes. Presently, we have Northeast Industrial Development Schemes. I think this will not do. If you would really like to do this, you extend the same facilities to the investors from Vietnam, to Cambodia, from Laos in the Northeast, so that, you know, you have a sense of competition. Today, the moment you withdraw it, you know, you have these entrepreneurs or pariah entrepreneurs, overnight operators, go there, grab it. The moment you withdraw, they also withdraw. I don't think this kind of system will ever work. So you really have to think big. Professor Kathuria, Professor Lama mentioned about the non-tariff measures between India and Nepal. In fact, we had just spoken earlier about a similar situation with Bangladesh. You have deeply studied the subject. You have written about the complicated and non-transparent non-tariff measures. This is my last question. The question is very broad, but I would like to have your views in a few sentences if it's possible. How can India solidify its status as an anchor economy that delivers sustainable partnership with its neighbors and takes the process of trade integration forward? It's a long-term endeavor. The process of uh, building trust, integrating, you cannot compete with China on economic issues. Let's be clear about that, you know, for the foreseeable future. 
And also, one cannot make all countries happy all the time. I think these are given. And that's a standard issue when you have large countries dealing with smaller countries in their neighborhood. It's not just only true for India. So what has India's uniquely placed to encourage and push economic integration, removing irritants and hurdles to imports and to inward investment in India, and encourage its private sector to invest in the neighboring countries and accelerate connectivity. Regional integration, as we've discussed, is still hugely underexploited. And there, India is the only country that can deliver regional integration to South Asia by virtue of its size and location. And therefore, it can deliver, can help to deliver growth and prosperity to all, including itself, right, by integrating. And then it should and is embracing the principle of asymmetric benefits. That means whenever you have an agreement, you give more benefits to your agreement partner than you uh, seek for yourself. It happened in the SAFTA, it happened in uh, the India-Sri Lanka trade agreement, and I'm sure it would happen in the India-Bangladesh SIPA. And this should continue and deepen and uh, be sensitive to other countries' concerns, uh, work behind the scenes to resolve frictions, not necessarily, you know, air them in public. Professor Lama? Yeah, I think we have started moving in a direction where I think we will have substantive gains as far as economic integration is concerned. Say, for example, I would say the entire national trade facilitating action plan led by the cabinet secretary is an example that government of India is really serious about how trade facilitation should happen. But what is required at the moment is to really go down to the action fields where the actions really take place. It should not be driven by what Kathmandu and what Dhaka and what uh, Islamabad and Delhi thinks about it. It should be driven by what the regional partners at a local level thinks about it. Precisely because the debate that goes at the national level and at the local level are absolutely different. For example, at the national level, Bangladesh, Nepal would always complain to India that you have a huge trade deficit, you have made us... You have moved away from interdependence matrix, right, matrices. But if you go to the border areas, then you will find a huge trade surplus vis-a-vis for Bangladesh, vis-a-vis the Indian partners this side. So when you have such kind of comparative advantages at the local level, why do you only highlight uh, the negatives as far as the national level is concerned? Third, I think very important issue at this juncture is you strengthen your economic diplomacy. The trainings of our policymakers as far as dealing with our neighboring countries would not work anymore. Because in the neighboring countries, till yesterday, you had graduates from Indian colleges, Indian universities. They saw they were essentially brought up in Indian systems. But if you go today, there are large number of graduates from the top universities in the world, top technical institutions in the world, and they have become the driving force in these countries. So their aspirations of are of the global level, whereas our ability to deal with them is of a traditional orthodox variety. So that means what? That means the entire economic diplomacy instruments, objects and objectives also have to undergo drastic changes. Thank you. Professor, this has been a very insightful to hear your expert perspective on this complicated but uh, very critical topic. 
I think we could have talked for hours on this subject because there are so many important um, aspects which can be dealt from a broader perspective and also from nitpicking at the very small level, micro level. Professor Kathuria and Professor Lama, thank you again for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Rate this conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. To stay updated, visit our website csdronline.org and follow us on Twitter at csdr underscore India. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and do not represent the organizational views held by CSDR or Friedrich Ebert Stiftung.